Well, if you've closed your Bibles, you can reopen them to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. We'll re-engage our study in Esther. Last week, of course, was our mission conference, and it was a great time to be together, a great time to uh, be challenged uh, with mission. And um, Now, that, that mission, really, it's only supported by our giving. Uh, and, uh, well, I shouldn't say only. It's the grace of God. Yes, um, but in our participation of it, it's the giving. So I encourage you to make an effort, make an, uh, a real effort to be regular in how you want to give to the mission, to the work. And um, if you don't have giving envelopes, I'd encourage you to be able to get a set. They're... Um, it's just a good reminder. I have them right next to the, my checkbook and where I do budget things on either Friday morning or Saturday morning. And it's there for me to prepare weekly and then drop it in the box. Uh, the elders, elders haven't been overly uh, excited about designated giving over, over the history, really, of grace. Um, but we have it, and we, you can designate specifically toward mission. But I want you to know that that if you, if you just put on the bottom line the total that you're giving, 30% of that goes toward mission. So all undesignated giving that we receive, 30% of it goes directly toward those frontline missionaries that we support. So just a food for thought. Esther chapter 4 is uh, bringing us uh, near, near the, the cusp of the tension in this drama. Oh, about five or six years before this, uh, Esther has had a banquet. She had a feast, Esther's feast. And she's been crowned the queen. But there's some bad things going on politically and relationally. Mordecai, her cousin, and then Haman, the second in command under the Persian Empire, uh, have had a tiff. It's kind of goes way back several hundred years. It's a family feud in a sense. Mordecai being a descendant of King Saul and Haman, uh, one of those uh, wicked kings, a uh, descendant from Amalek who fought against not only Saul but fought against the people of, of God when they had been released from Egypt. And Amalek would come up near the, the back of this refugee group uh, moving along the desert and into, into the promised land, and he'd pick off the stragglers from behind. And he did this, the, the text tells us he did this because he hated God. He didn't fear the Lord. So we have not just a family feud going on. This is, this is uh, cosmic spiritual warfare. This is the battle between the serpent and the Lord himself. This is the battle between the serpent and the seed of the woman who would come and bring deliverance and relief for the world and for the people of God. That's what's going on behind the scenes. And, of course, the, the author of this, of this narrative doesn't give us those kinds of background situations, not, not only the spiritual conflict that's happening. We have to read into that because of what we do know, already know about the biblical narrative beginning in Genesis chapter, chapter 3 and the serpent that is there and his head is to be crushed. Well, he has descendants and Amalek and Haman are one of them. Well, we're looking at this now 
um, this manifestation. And the queen now herself has been very removed, uh, sitting in, oh, as we might say, ivory palaces. And in those Persian days, nothing, nothing bad, nothing negative is, is supposed to come into the king's palace. And those Oriental Persian kings is all wonderful. And they kind of live in a shroud of virtual reality. It's everything's wonderful and great. And, and even as Haman has crafted his plot of genocide to destroy the people of God, uh, he sits down with the king and they indulge in just a little, little drinking party. Uh, and the rest of the city is in turmoil. Like, what is going on? What is this about? This, this dichotomy of emotion and this removal. Well, Esther isn't, we, we won't be too negative on her, but she's the queen and she's protected and she's guarded. She's in, in this place removed from the real scenario. Mordecai learns something that's happening and he needs to somehow get news to the queen. We're going to work through this narrative in three little units, three little blocks. The first will identify this, this emotion of lamentation, verses 1 to 5. Do you mind if I read, it, read this section again? Mordecai learned, we've had that verse, um, that word learned earlier in chapter 2, verse 22. Mordecai is a learner. In fact, we get the sense that Mordecai is somehow involved in the intelligence network within the Persian Empire. Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went into the midst of the city, and actually the, the wording here is that he went right into city center. He went into the midst of the city and he cried out in a loud and bitter cry. And he went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate. So he went up to the gate, but he didn't go in. He didn't sit in the gate as would his position normally avail him. So in verse 3, every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamentation. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. And when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. And this is, a, this is a word like actual physical pain. I mean, she's truly anguished. And she went to send garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he wouldn't accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. There's a great emotion and, and agony going on here. Mordecai learned what's going on. And as the narrative goes on, we realize he has significant detail. Even, even the amount of money that Haman is going to contribute to the treasury, he knows these details. And as we've gone through the, the narrative, he's a wise and discerning agent for the empire. And now we'll see this, this discernment will be used to protect the people of God. There's some probably 15 million uh, Jews in the empire at this time spread throughout. They call it the diaspora. They're dispersed all throughout, from Susa to Persepolis, all the way back into the capital Jerusalem, for Zerubbabel has already taken a group of 
Israelites back into the land to begin to rebuild the temple. It's not going well. And, and throughout the whole empire, this edict has gone that neighbors can attack their neighbors, the Jews. Slaughter them, kill them, and, and obtain all of their property. You wonder, well, what would motivate people to, to kill their neighbors? Well, if you acquire their property, I suppose that could be a motivation. Whether you really liked them or didn't like them, then regardless, you like their stuff. So the folks even out in, in Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple, where the people of promise, where the line of Messiah is to come, are threatened with eradication. These people um, learn probably the similar ways through the grapevine uh, and the network news. Mordecai has gone into city center. He's, he's not hiding uh, the fact that he's Jewish. He had, remember, indicated to Esther that she should guard herself, protect herself, not reveal her ethnicity. But Mordecai has revealed his ethnicity. He's not hiding anything. He's, he's a Jew, and he worships as a Jew, it would appear. He goes right into city center with broadcast news, and that news spreads throughout the whole empire, and the people follow suit in grief and mourn and lamentation. So the Jews, isn't that, isn't that fascinating? They're not hiding. In fact, by grieving, mourning, lamenting, tearing clothes, putting on sackcloth, fasting, they're letting everyone around them know who they are. It's a kind of protest. Now, as we've worked through uh, Esther and in times past through Daniel, we've noted that when, when these people of God are confronted with things that are opposed to their biblical worldview. Generally, they just keep on doing what they do. They do the right things. They don't do the wrong things. They won't bow to an idol. They won't worship the king as a god. They will only worship the Lord himself as God. They just quietly go about their business. When it becomes illegal to pray, they, they simply go to their private closet room and pray. They don't make a big deal out of it. They don't protest. They don't make voice. But this time, this people group is letting everyone know something is wrong. But it's not an angry, in-your-face kind of protest, is it? This is a lamenting and a grieving. We are saddened, even sickened, by the evil that is in this world and the evil that is to be upon us as the people of God. Something for us to note and something for us to observe, how would we as the people of God today protest? How have we? And what kind of response has it evoked? Something to consider. They're making their plight known. This inexplicable edict that Haman has put throughout the whole of the empire. It says that they're fasting and weeping and wailing, verse 3. Those words are used in Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Same identical words. In verse 1, it says that Mordecai is aloud, crying aloud and wailing. It's the same, exact same words that are used in Jonah chapter 3, verse 7, when 
when uh, the Ninevites respond to the preaching of Jonah to repent of their sin, and they do, and they cry and weep aloud, and the king himself puts on sackcloth. This the same kind of response. So the narrative in Esther doesn't mention the name of God ever. It doesn't indicate that they're actually praying in the midst of their, of their fasting. But when we read these very same words in the context of Jonah chapter 3 and Joel chapter 2, it would appear that every time the Israelites come to this place of grief in fasting and sackcloth and ashes, that it includes prayer. Some have observed in a, in a literary sort of way that the, the overt neglect to mention God or to mention prayer actually brings greater emphasis to it. We can't help but our interests be piqued. What, what about God? Where is He? What about prayer? Where is it? How, is, how are the people interacting with God? And literarily, the author has, might we say, tricked us into making that the emphasis. The providence of God. He's behind all of this. Prayer. This is how the people of God engage with the providences of God. Well, the acts of corporate mourning are indeed associated with repentance. And the prophets had indicated to the people of God that the reason they're going into exile, first into Babylon and then Babylon overtaken by Persia, is because Israel themselves had not worshipped God properly. They, they had desecrated the temple themselves by their vain offerings. And so God says, no more of this. I'm not going to take any more of that kind of worship. Out with you. And he moves them out of the temple. He moves them out of the, out of the promised land to teach them. But the prophets say when they repent, when the people of God repent, then they will return to the place of worship of the name of the Lord. And this may indeed be one of those repenting moments. The people of God recognizing they are in great despair, great distress, on the verge of destruction, and there is nowhere else they can go but to the God who's behind the scenes. Lamentation. Well, we sang rejoice, rejoice. And we can because of the Lord Jesus Christ who has overcome destruction in our place. But lamentation is kind of a counterpoint to rejoicing. Lamentation uh, recognizes the suffering, and in recognizing the suffering, we, we deal with that distrust through lament. And we even make a complaint. That's another word for lament, to complain. Now, do you complain to the Lord? Well, in one sense, we want to be careful. We, we don't want to be, as the nation of Israel, wandering around in the wilderness. And, and uh, uh, the word escapes my mind. What do they grumble. They grumble in the wilderness. No, we don't want that. But to be honest with God and say, God, this, this is the situation in which we find ourselves. I'm stuck in this place. I'm stuck in this moment. I'm stuck in this situation. And and it's oppressive, God. God, hear my cry. You're the one 
the only one who can change the circumstance. Through lamentation, we're encouraged to deal with our suffering and direct our despair, not away from God, but direct our despair toward God. Bring your despair to Him. And the Psalms, the Psalms are beautiful places to find the words. How, how do I express properly the despair that I have before the Lord? Walt Kaiser, uh, in one of his Old Testament theologies, he says, God has placed personal and national laments in Scripture as a corrective against euphoric celebratory notions of faith which romantically portray life as consisting only of sweetness. Sometimes we've been told uh, about the Christian life that it will all be the best life now. And that's absolutely a lie. God, Jesus says, everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's, it's the narrow way. If they treated Jesus with blasphemy and crucifixion, how will they treat those who follow him? That's what we should expect to tape up our cross daily and follow after him. Well, lamentation will often in include fasting, and here it does in this. And fasting, we, we covered that topic uh, a little bit a summer ago. And uh, we took several sessions to talk about hungering for God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness and this discipline of physical fasting. On the reverse side of your, of your outline sheet, there's several resources that are listed. Some are general concepts of prayer. There's a few there that are actual tools, prayer books to help. Well, what do I pray when I'm with the Lord alone? Those tools are there, but there's a couple of resources to at the end of the list specifically on this discipline of fasting. Fasting. Well, Jesus does teach his disciples to pray and to fast in Matthew chapter 6 and the early church does in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 14. This is the pattern. Well, in, in all this, Esther, Esther sees, hears what's going on with Mordecai and, and she sends clothes. And you might say, sometimes when, when you're in that despondency, in that place of despair, People will come along inside, come alongside you, mean well meaning. They they love you. And they want what's good for you, but they'll say, Ah, come on, cheer up. Pick it up, move on. It's okay. You you could read this Esther sending Mordecai clothes. And say, Get cousin, take off the sackcloth, put on clothes. Cheer up. It'll be okay. No, no what she's likely doing because she also is now feeling physically, viscerally, the same kind of anguish. So she doesn't even know why. It's vicarious. She sees her, her brother in the Lord. She sees her cousin grieving and in great distress and she takes on the same anguish. She sympathizes. She has compassion with her cousin, but she doesn't even know why. She wants to talk with him. He can't come through the gate 
clothed in sackcloth, right? Bad stuff doesn't get in the palace. It's all fluffy and light. Mordecai, change your clothes, come in, and we can talk about this. And he refuses. He won't. He will, he will stay in the condition of his people. He will continue to represent the distance that there is in the empire. She, wanting to commune with him, asks him to clothe himself. Well, the next little paragraph here, verses 6 to 11, we'll call this one trepidation. Hathok went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city, city center, and in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued. Like, this guy has access to secret documents. Now, he showed it to, to Esther and explained to her the command uh, and he commanded her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke with Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I've not been called to come into the king 30 days. That's a bit of distance between a husband and a wife, between a king and a queen, isn't it? 30 days not talking to one another. Distance in a relationship is not helpful. Distance will create this insecurity this trepidation that Esther has to go before the king I'm sure the king has not been alone those 30 nights but he's not been with Esther more distrust more comparativeness more insecurity and Mordecai tells her go tell the king who you are your people your background well I'd be a bit hesitant too wouldn't you well, it's kind of comical in this going back and forth. Poor Hafak, he's running back and forth, kind of like that passenger was running back and forth last Sunday, here, there, and everywhere. Well, Mordecai does pass on this very important intelligence onto the queen. And Esther is one of nobility and honor and character, and you can see how even Hafak and her other uh, court attendants respect her, love her, care for her, and they, they do what she says and even more. They help with the communication. Now, I, I, I envision something like, you know, why, why didn't just Hafak go? You know, it seems like this whole group goes, this entourage, into the city center, into the public square, and, and I suspect something kind of like this. You know, Mordecai, is Jewish, and everybody knows it now. We don't know that he ever really hid it necessarily, but it's certainly right out in the open. Now, what, what do you suppose people would think if Hathok, the, the queen's 
confidant and chief servant is going right up to this Jewish man and having just open con air conversation with him. Hmm, that's odd. So I, I envision something like there's Mordecai and, and now maybe it'd be hard to hide him at all, but you get this entourage of servants all around and confusion and stuff and Hathak and Mordecai are able to have this on the side conversation in the midst of all the hustle and bustle, the entourage around him. I don't know, just a little sanctified imagination as to what, what could be going on here. You know, you, you see the Hollywood stuff. You, you, read, you read good literature and story and narrative, and the best stories are here. You know, we, we read this with that sense of intrigue. Real life, it's here. Well, yeah, Esther's apprehensive. She's inhibited. She's hesitating. There's a limitation. Now, she's not arguing with Mordecai uh, in the sense of disobedience, though she's not necessarily wanting to do what he says. She always has up to this point. Mordecai, her cousin, but really serving as her father and raising her as an orphan girl. And now in a kind of, though royal, abusive kind of relationship. No, but she does, as Fox would say, argue the impossibility of compliance. I can't do that. There's no way. It won't work. Now, in, in some of the artwork uh, of the Persian Empire, there's a couple of, of pieces that were found in Persepolis, another royal city, where there's the king sitting on his throne and there's an uh, uh, axe man standing beside him. You know, it's there, it's there to, it's there to certainly protect the king physically from assassination attempt or something of that nature, but it's there to protect the king's time from imposition upon him with little details and things that aren't, aren't really necessary for him to be involved in or worry about. An axe man. Some of you are thinking, boy, you could use one too, couldn't you? No, not, not really. We have assistance. Um, But it's a real thing, and, it's, and it's, it's, it's helpful when we when we find the archaeological stuff that's out there that corroborates with the Scripture. It doesn't prove Scripture to be true. Scripture is true. It's the Word of God. It has the very same character and the nature of God Himself. But He, he is good and kind at times to give us these historical documents or artifacts to help us, a little evidence upon which we build our faith. Well, distance indeed creates this insecurity, but we know this too, that fear and uncertainty are the context in which courage and faith are exhibited. Why do you need faith and courage if there isn't a measure of hesitancy and trouble? Courage and faith are not incompatible with fear and hesitation but it's overcoming them by the grace of God. It's good to see that Esther is like us. She's not a superhero with superpowers. She's a, a girl who grew up as an orphan, taken into an abusive relationship, but God is still working behind the scenes. How and what? 
you know, that's what she, that's what she wants to find out from Mordecai. What is this? Why is this? She could say that about her entire life. What is this? Why? And she doesn't have the answers, and God doesn't overtly give her the answers. But she still believes. She still lives faithfully, loyally, righteously. And so can we. We can ask the questions. We can lament. But we trust God in the providences. He's good. And He will make good, even out of bad. We wonder how that can happen here in this situation. But Mordecai responds in verses 12 to 17, follow with what we'll call determination. They told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, don't think to yourself that in the king's palace you'll escape any more than all the other Jews. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do and then I'll go to the king, though it's against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the first time that Esther doesn't obey the instructions of Mordecai, and it's the first time that now Mordecai obeys what Esther says. Things have changed and shifted in the relationship, and Esther is coming into her own as queen of the empire. There's a determination. And in order for the people of God to be saved, someone needs to give their life. That's the paradigm throughout the creation of God. In order for God's people to live, someone must give a life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Christ has given of His life for us. Well, God's deliverance comes about, yes, He can do things overtly, supernaturally, and miraculously, but most of the time He does these things privately, providentially, behind the scenes, through people. God's deliverance comes about because a, a human being accepts the responsibility to use their God-given position that they're in, to love mercy and to act justly. They act in faith and with courage. They take the risk of doing the right thing even though they know the risk. And the risk is very real. Uh, maybe 70 years, 100 years earlier, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are faced with punishment for not bowing down to an idol that the empire emperor had made. And they're caught not because they made this overt protest, they just simply didn't bow. But they're turned in, and they stand before the king, and the king says, King, God is able to protect us from that fiery furnace, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. They knew God could, they didn't know if he would. 
And so we live the same way, don't we? And Esther is living in this way. She accepts the responsibility even though there is no guarantee that she will be delivered. But Mordecai is right, and, and he says, you know, if you keep silent, relief and deliverance will come from another place. Now, that, that doesn't mean, okay, well, if I don't do anything, someone else will. That is not what Mordecai is getting at, and that's not how Esther responds. Yes, we are, in a sense, irreplaceable, all of us. God will accomplish his purpose, and our neglect isn't going to thwart him from doing his ultimate purposes. But we might miss out on significant things. We might miss out on significant blessing, of significant sanctification, growing deeper in faith and hope and love. Surrender to the providences of God actually produce righteous valor, boldness for him and for his people. Philippians is the words of Paul the Apostle. Philippians 1 verse 20. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Mordecai, says one commentator, wanted her life surrendered to the Lord. And she became a living sacrifice to accomplish the work of God. Mordecai alludes to this providential purpose of life uh, in, in history in verse 14, doesn't he? God places us where He desires us to be to fulfill His purposes. He uses even those terrible circumstances and wicked circumstances. He turns them around on their head for the good of His people. Now, He's not the author of sin or the originator of evil by any means at all. The serpent, the devil, is the one that has plunged us into this. But God is working ever patiently to redeem a people, to bring relief and deliverance. And we wonder why, if he's good, does he not just do it? And I understand that question and that emotion. That emotion too. But think if God had just stepped in immediately right away the first sin and judged right then and there where would you be we 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 can thank god for his patience in meeting out his judgment because he has in in only the wise way that he can that only he can he has provided a way in His patience to save people. And in that patience, yeah, there is time for wickedness to run, but there is also time for you to repent. There's time for your neighbors to repent. There's time for the leaders of the nations to repent. 
We're more like James and John, the sons of thunder, and we want lightning and thunder to come down on our enemies right now. The day will come. God will judge the nations. Until then, may we have His patience and His compassion and see that people come to know Jesus as their Savior and as their Lord. God lets nothing in your life go to waste. He will redeem your circumstances. Unlike Xerxes, our king, the king of kings, is not flippant or careless as a despot. God is gracious and kind. He is a sovereign who seeks ways for those who are banished from his presence to be redeemed and come into his presence. We need not be afraid. We need not come with trepidation, fear, or trembling into the presence of the Holy God. For He sent His one and only Son, Jesus our Lord, to, shall we say, put on the sackcloth for us. To put on the ashes to take on the judgment in our place so that we can approach the throne of grace boldly, seeking His mercy, His favor in times of need. The Son of God went willingly to death on behalf of His own people. Yeah, He prayed, if it's possible for this cup to pass from me, Lord, nevertheless, not my will, but Your will be done. In His surrender to the providence of God, Righteous valor is won upon the cross. And the Father vindicated him, raising him from the dead, that we too might know the victory in life over death and life eternal. God, we thank you for this narrative that tells us uh, a glimpse of real life and indeed gives us a glimpse of your wonderful providence so we would yield and surrender ourselves to you that we would be people of righteous valor when the time comes. May we trust you. May we grow closer in our relationships, ultimately our relationship with you. We thank you for Jesus that has allowed us to come into your presence humbly and holy. It is in his name we pray. Amen.